0: Hello, my friends. I'm Jared Halverson. This is Unshaken, and we are picking up right where we left off last week. Last week was the Book of Mormon's equivalent of Deuteronomy, where you have Moses on Mount Nebo blessing the House of Israel and giving them final words of encouragement before they head into the Promised Land without him. And in the Book of Mormon's equivalent of that, you see Father Lehi giving his final father's blessings and words of exhortation to his posterity. Last week, we started with chapter 1 of 2 Nephi, where Lehi was teaching and blessing Laman and Lemuel. Arise from the dust, my sons, and be men, is what he told them. And then in chapter 2, we saw Lehi teach Jacob. And that was a sweet and sacred experience, to talk about his words. Honestly, it felt a little like we were intruding eavesdropping on a conversation that was meant to be private and personal between a tender parent and an over-anxious child. And yet so many of us are tender parents and so many of us are anxious children and probably a combination of the two. And if you've ever struggled with scrupulosity, if you've ever dealt with toxic perfectionism, if you've ever felt like you will forever fall short of divine expectations, then Jacob is your kindred spirit. And the words that Lehi gave to him are meant for you as well. And so I hope they were helpful. I hope last week gave you a glimpse into Jesus Christ uh, in ways that perhaps you've underestimated or underappreciated. That was a sacred experience. And so if you didn't get a chance to finish 2 Nephi 2 last week, I mean, pause this week. It can wait a day or two and go back and give 2 Nephi 2 the time and attention it deserves. Once you've done that, though, here we are in chapter 3, starting this week, which Lehi is continuing his father's blessings, this time to his youngest son, Joseph. And yet Joseph barely appears in that chapter. Dad has a few other Josephs to talk about instead. And then chapter 4, the spotlight shines on Nephi, but not by way of father's blessing. Instead, it is Nephi's psalm. Uh, We'll talk about why that's there instead of a father's blessing, which you would have expected. And yet you will see a glimpse of Nephi's soul that I don't think we've noticed up to this point. It's beautiful. And then chapter 5 is a pivot point in Nephite history because it's there that Nephi and, Le- and Laman finally split, never again to reunite. And, and that means we're at the beginning of the Nephites versus Lamanites that will characterize the rest of the Book of Mormon. It's here we'll get our first glimpse of what's come to be known as the Lamanite curse. And that is a troubling passage We'll need to do our best to wrap our heads around it today because it's going to keep rearing its ugly head later on in the Book of Mormon. And so we'll need to have a good foundation of understanding to build upon in subsequent chapters. So that's what we've got our our work cut out for us this week. And sweet is the work. I I hope that it will be a blessing to you. But let's dive into chapter three and, and pick up with Father Lehi, this time blessing his youngest son. Now, like I said, we know precious little about Joseph. We know quite a bit about Jacob, comparatively. Uh, all of next week will be words from Jacob. He'll give us an entire book of scripture that we'll study in a month or so. But we don't get the same attention with, with Joseph. We can assume his life would have been very similar to Jacob's. Uh, those two brothers, peas in a pod, that were born in the wilderness in a time of incredible adversity and affliction. Much of what we saw last week probably applies to Joseph as well. But I wish we had more. I wish we had the sermons that he taught. We'll see at the end of this week's material that he was ordained a teacher and priest, just like his big brother Jacob was. So he would have had a ministry that would have been worth recording. But evidently what we need from Joseph is this one chapter, which has little to do with him and far more to do with a pair of other Josephs, the people that shared his name. With that then, go to chapter 3, verse 4. And here Lehi says to his youngest son, Behold, thou art the fruit of my loins, and I am a descendant of Joseph who was carried captive into Egypt. That's where we got your name, son. We learned that back in 1 Nephi chapter 5 when Lehi first starts studying the, the brass plates and realizes that's the lineage that he comes from. He is a descendant of Joseph. But notice the focal point as Lehi continues. Great were the covenants of the Lord which he made unto Joseph. Now, that's going to be important for young Joseph, his son, to understand because his life's been so hard. I don't I don't I never lived in Jerusalem. I never had good days. And yet here I am in a family that is splintering apart right in front of me. And I wonder, does God remember us? We're the the scattered branch cut off from the olive tree of Israel. And and have we been forgotten and forsaken by him? from the very beginning of this chapter, Father Lehi is reassuring him, son, you are not cast off forever. You remember that language from the title page? One of the Book of Mormon's central purposes is to establish the covenant relationship between the God of Israel and every branch of Israel, including the scattered branches that this young Joseph is a part of. In fact, talk about a perfect parallel because the ancestor that he was named for Think about that Joseph, Joseph of Egypt. And the fact we call him Joseph of Egypt lets you know that he was in a territory he didn't intend to occupy. He probably felt forsaken and forgotten by God as well. The God of Abraham, his great-grandpa. The God of Isaac, his grandfather. The God of Jacob, his own father. And yet when we refer to the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, do we forget Joseph is the very next generation? Does Joseph himself feel forgotten? As he's been sold into slavery in Egypt, he rises in authority under Potiphar and then is thrown into prison for something he didn't even do. If there's anyone who would have had cause to question God's covenant, it would have been that Joseph. And so to reassure this Joseph, how you're just like that ancestor. You have not been forgotten. Because of God's covenant, he cannot forget you. So, Dad says next in verse 5, Wherefore, Joseph truly saw our day. He obtained a promise of the Lord. There's covenant again. A promise that out of the fruit of his loins, the Lord God would raise up a righteous branch unto the house of Israel. Not the Messiah, that's going to be the tribe of Judah, but a branch which was to be broken off. Nevertheless, to be remembered in the covenants of the Lord that the Messiah should be made manifest unto them in the latter days, in the spirit of power, unto the bringing of them out of darkness, unto light. Yea, out of hidden darkness, and out of captivity, unto freedom. Again, language like that would have struck a chord with Joseph of Egypt. Brought out of captivity to become second only to Pharaoh himself. And why? So that he could save his family. So that he could be the instrument in God's hands. You are not a a forgotten branch. If anything... You've been cut off the tree so you could be planted in a more fruitful area and thus bring forth fruit that would feed and bless the rest of your family. In a similar way, Lehi and his youngest son, Joseph, would be living similar experiences. A branch cut off from the olive tree of Israel. We saw Lehi talk about that as early as 1 Nephi chapter 10. We are being scattered as we speak. But there is a divine purpose behind this scattering. We're not cut off. We are going to be instrumental in God's blessing of the entire family. That's the purpose of Joseph in Egypt. And it's the purpose of this branch of Joseph that is taking root in this new promised land. If you think about Genesis 49... When a very ancient father Jacob is blessing his sons, including the two sons of Joseph, you see, Joseph is going to be the birthright son. There's some confusion in Genesis because you've got plural marriage at the time. And so when Reuben, the first son of the first wife, disqualifies himself, the question is, does the birthright go to the second son of the first wife or the first son of the second wife? And the book of Chronicles makes it clear that it goes to Joseph, first son of second wife of Rachel, not of Leah. And yet we also see that there will be an authority that is passed down to Judah, which is one of Leah's sons as well. In those patriarchal blessings that are given in chapter 49 of Genesis, uh, Judah is told that the scepter will not pass from his hand. There's the kingly line. And as, as Lehi is saying here, the Messiah is going to come from a different branch. That's going to come from Judah. And yet this branch that is broken off, that's mentioned in the patriarchal blessing given to Joseph and his tribes back in Genesis 49. Look at verse 22. Joseph is a fruitful bough, a branch, okay? Even a fruitful bough by a well whose branches run over the wall. And that's exactly what Lehi has just done. Run over the wall of the ocean and been transplanted in a new world. But just like his ancestor Joseph, by so doing, he will feed the family in their days of spiritual famine. Notice how he describes it, starting in verse 6. For Joseph truly testified, saying, A seer shall the Lord my God raise up, who shall be a choice seer unto the fruit of my loins. We saw earlier that Moses prophesied about a prophet that would be a lot like him. Someone that would free the slaves and bring them out of bondage into a land of promise. One who would give them his higher law. And that that prophet is the Messiah. That Messiah is Jesus Christ. A prophet like unto Moses. Well, here Joseph is seeing someone that will someday come that similarly, similarly is a lot like unto him. A choice Seer. Now, for the rest of this chapter, we're going to learn about this seer. But I want to cut to the chase and, spoiler alert, make it crystal clear who this choice seer is so that we don't miss a beat when we come back and look at all the details that Joseph is prophesying about him. So if you fast forward to verse 15, here's the spoiler alert. His name shall be called after me, Joseph of Egypt says, and it shall be after the name of his father. Now, I can only imagine a young Joseph Smith, Jr., Translating this page on the gold plates, dictating to Oliver Cowdery, his scribe at the time, and saying, "Okay, his name shall be called after me." Oh, okay, that's interesting. This choice seer that will someday be be raised up to bless Joseph's posterity, he's going to have the same name as Joseph. Oh, okay, great. He shall be after the name of his father. Oh, so it's going to be a Joseph Jr. Oh, whoa, nee 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 nee. Can you picture how? unnerving that would feel for Joseph Smith Jr. to translate this page and realize that that's talking about me. Joseph of Egypt had his eye on Joseph of Palmyra, and I have a mission to fulfill. I mean, I always think about Jesus as a 12-year-old when he goes to the temple. Remember, Mother Mary is freaking out, and thy father and I have sought thee sorrowing. And Jesus responds I have been, wist ye not that I must be about my father's business, capital F? As if to say, Joseph, love you. You're not my dad. And I know that. I know who I am and whose I am. And I know whose work I must be about. And so I'm ready for it. And in a similar way, at least by this moment in Second Nephi 3, a fairly young Joseph Smith is, it's crystal clear. I, I'm getting who I am. And I know the mission God has for me. Now, go back and start with what Joseph of Egypt is saying about this choice seer. And we get our prophetic commentary on what Joseph Smith is supposed to accomplish. Again, if, if I were him and, and got to verse 15 and saw that, I would then rush back to the beginning and see exactly what I, what's been spelled out for me. You see, to finish verse 15 first, Joseph says, he shall be like unto me for the thing which the Lord shall bring forth by his hand, by the power of the Lord shall bring my people unto salvation. That's your marching orders. That's what you're going to do. Actually, that's what I'm going to do through you. I love how the Lord makes that crystal clear. It's something the Lord will bring forth. It's the power of the Lord that that will do it. But as God works through his servant Joseph, What's his aim? To bring his people unto salvation, to feed the rest of the family, to overcome the famine of the word of God that prophets like Amos warned us about. So go back, starting in verse 7, and let's see this now that we know that we are learning about Joseph Smith. Verse 7, Unto him will I give commandment that he shall do a work for the fruit of thy loins, his brethren which shall be of great worth unto them, even to the bringing of them to the knowledge of the covenants which I have made with thy fathers. Now, these are words that the Lord said to Joseph of Egypt. So when he says his brethren, Joseph Smith is going to be part of that that tribe of Israel. And the rest of the posterity of Joseph will be blessed by their kinsman, Joseph Smith. Uh, as an Ephraimite, part of that birthright tribe. If you think about the the birthright son gets a double portion. That's why there are two tribes of Joseph. His sons, Ephraim and Manasseh, are elevated to the same level as all of their uncles. That way their father gets a double portion and, and two tribes. But to think about the work that Joseph Smith would do to bring forth the Word of God, particularly to the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh. The initial converts to the church, as the church began growing, it was typically among Ephraimites and Manassehites that it, was, that it was growing. And yet again, what's the role of the birthright child? To make sure that the rest of the family is provided for. It's exactly what Joseph did in Egypt. It's exactly what Joseph did beginning in Palmyra. We have to make sure that this bread of life is spread to every hungry mouth in the family. It's part of the covenant That I've made. And so there you see that word again. In verse 8, I will give unto him a commandment that he shall do none other work save the work which I shall command him. And I will make him great in mine eyes, but he shall do my work. And if there's one thing you can see about Joseph Smith, it's that he was so single minded when it came to the work of God. There's an interesting verse in the Doctrine and Covenants. I want to say it's around section 24, 26, something like that where he's told, Joseph Smith is told, in spiritual things, I will give you strength. In temporal things, yeah, not so much. And it's interesting to realize that the Lord was aiming Joseph away from other occupations because I have one work for you to do, and it's the only work you should worry about. None other work than that. And and I love how focused Joseph was on the work of the Lord from from the moment he was called to be a prophet of God. In verse 9 through 11, some additional details. He shall be great like unto Moses, whom I have said I would raise up unto you to deliver my people, O house of Israel. And Moses will I raise up to deliver thy people out of the land of Egypt. So that's we're going to, we're going to see division of labor here. Moses is going to have a mission to perform and he's going to do it, a temporal deliverance there. But then keep reading. But a seer will I raise up out of the fruit of thy loins and unto him will I give power to bring forth my word unto the seed of thy loins. And not to the bringing forth my word only, saith the Lord, but to the convincing them of my word, which shall have already gone forth among them. Now there you see that one of Joseph Smith's principal purposes is to bring forth the word of God by the power of God. Now think about what he did in terms of translating the Book of Mormon by the gift and power of God. What he did to bring forth revelation upon revelation that's now recorded in the Doctrine and Covenants. Translating the, the Bible by inspiration and revelation. Oh, the Book of Moses, Book of Abraham, some magnificent truth that has been given us by the Prophet Joseph. But the way Joseph of Egypt ends that verse, it's not just to bring forth the Word, it's to convince them of the Word. And not just any word, the word that had already gone forth among them. And what was that word? That was the Bible. I think it's tragic that so often people assume that Joseph Smith must have been anti-Bible because he added to it. And yet, so much of Joseph's mission was biblically based. It was Translate the Bible by inspiration to restore the version of Scripture that existed in God's own bosom. That's how it's described in Section 35 of the Doctrine and Covenants, or in terms of the Book of Mormon. What was its role? Do you remember back in 1 Nephi, Chapter 13, when Nephi sees in vision the apostasy and restoration, and who was who played the star or what played the starring role in that chapter? The book that came forth from the mouth of the Jews. It was the Bible that was center stage throughout that apostasy and restoration history. And it was the Book of Mormon that was meant to restore its plain and precious parts. Remember our conversation back then? What was the plain and precious part? The covenant lens through which we're supposed to study the Bible. And the Book of Mormon comes and joins it in order to restore that covenant. Now we start seeing that God has never given up hope on the house of Israel. And is doing all within his power to graft that branch back into the tree. That's the role that Joseph of Egypt played in his family. It's the role that Joseph Smith is playing in his. And so it's interesting to see how the Bible and Book of Mormon are meant to come together. That's the next verse, verse 12. Wherefore, the fruit of thy loins shall write. And that's what we see in the Book of Mormon. And the fruit of the loins of Judah shall write. That's what we get in the pages of the Bible. And that which shall be written by the fruit of thy loins, the Book of Mormon, and also that which shall be written by the fruit of the loins of Judah, the Bible, shall grow together. Again, if we're thinking of branches here, the branch of the tree of life that's extending out and hardening into an iron rod, you see these these dual branches. You see Bible and Book of Mormon growing together. Every plain and precious part exactly where it needs to be. And notice what together they're trying to accomplish. They shall grow together unto the confounding of false doctrines and laying down of contentions and establishing peace among the fruit of thy loins and bringing them to the knowledge of their fathers in the latter days and also to the knowledge of my covenants, saith the Lord. Everything that was spelled out on the title page. That's what the Book of Mormon and Bible, hand in hand, side by side, are supposed to do. This is the stick of Judah and the stick of Ephraim. These are two leadership tribes. A scepter in the hand of one, a a fruitful branch in the hand of the other. And together they are meant to bless the entire family of the house of Israel. And the house of Israel, if you remember the Abrahamic covenant, their job is to make sure that all the families of the earth are blessed in like manner. It all has to start somewhere. And to me, it's interesting to see Bible and Book of Mormon meant to be sister scripture. Meant to be companion volumes. One in our hand, Ezekiel tells us. And so, the years I spent living in the Bible Belt, it was tragic that in some ways what was meant to accomplish or meant to be accomplished the exact opposite was happening because of people's misperceptions. When it speaks of, of establishing peace, unfortunately, it led to conflict instead as people assumed that the Book of Mormon was meant to take the place of the Bible, which it isn't. If anything, the Book of Mormon is meant to fortify the Bible, keeping the Bible in pole position in some ways. That is the central book. That is the book of God's covenants. And the Book of Mormon is there to restore those covenants, or at least the the perspective of covenant that we're supposed to read the Bible through. If that can happen, then forget false doctrine. We are understanding things by the mouth of two or three witnesses. These two hands coming together, two eyes that establish depth perception and help us see in ways that we couldn't on our own. To lay down that contention, to establish that peace, As I would often say to my Bible-believing evangelical friends in the South when I lived there, oh, please do not mistake what the Book of Mormon is meant to accomplish. The Book of Mormon is the best friend the Bible ever had. That's what I would always tell them. When you live in the Bible belt, the Bible feels impregnable, uh, like, like nothing can overcome it. It's invincible, and yet go beyond it. And the Bible has been under vicious attack. You thought there was anti-Book of Mormon material? That's small fry compared to the anti-Biblicism that has existed for centuries. And yet the Book of Mormon comes to defend the Bible's witness of a covenant Christ. A loving Father who has promised the house of Israel that he would never give up on them. These books need to become one in our hand. I worry sometimes about what I call the Benson backlash. And I love President Ezra Taft Benson. He was a voice up from the dust that was wiping the dust off the Book of Mormon. And for him to emphasize the study of the Book of Mormon was exactly what the Church needed. But I have worried that there has been a Benson backlash since his presidency where instead of saying a Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible, we don't need another Bible, church members instead say, a Book of Mormon, a Book of Mormon, we have a Book of Mormon, we don't need another Book of Mormon. And no, in verses like this, we see that the Book of Mormon's purpose, among other things, is to shore up the Bible, to defend it, to protect it from the skepticism that would gnaw away at its credibility. So yes, as you study the Book of Mormon this year, Don't feel that you have to completely leave the Bible behind. And if it ever becomes a struggle when it's Old Testament year or New Testament year of come follow me. You're like, oh, I don't know if I should read that. I'm supposed to be in the Book of Mormon. It's all good. It's all one witness that's growing together. Now, from there, go to verse 13. And we're back to Joseph, who is the one who's going to bring to light these truths. But notice an interesting detail here. Joseph of Egypt prophesies of this later choice seer and says that out of weakness he shall be made strong, in that day when my work shall commence among my people, unto the restoring thee, O house of Israel, saith the Lord. I love that verse. Because it starts with weakness but moves towards strength. This is like Ether 12:27. And if we're humble, if we trust in the sufficient grace of Jesus Christ, then our weak things can be made strong unto us. And that describes Joseph Smith to a T. Yes, there were times in his life where he was weak. He, he trusted too, too, people too much, more than they deserved. He was swayed early in his life by the opinions of others. He lost 116 pages. He succumbed to some of the foibles of human nature in his youth. But out of weakness, he was made strong. And God saw to that. I am well aware of some of the complaints that people raise about Joseph Smith. And yet I am amazed by the strength that God gave to him to make him a choice seer and be able to bring forth the work that God had in store for him. Notice what the work would be. Beautiful verse here. It's unto the restoring thee. O house of Israel. We talk about all kinds of things as the object of the restoration. We talk about the restoration of the church and the restoration of the priesthood and the restoration of the gospel. But guess what God talks about? The restoration of the, you, O house of Israel. This is the Book of Mormon's version of it. But the Doctrine and Covenants, equally beautiful. Section 84 of the Doctrine and Covenants, verse 2. Yea, the word of the Lord concerning this church established in the last days for the restoration of his people. That's what the Lord is after. Every other restored thing is merely means, not ends. It's scaffolding, not structure. And what is God trying to restore more than anything? Us. He's trying to restore us to a right relationship with him. He's trying to restore us to a proper self-understanding. We are God's children. And until we understand that, and until we come to our senses and, and are restored to a true understanding of our relationship with God, then all the other things that God is attempting to restore aren't doing much. What's the point of restoring church and gospel and priesthood if all those things don't restore us? To our heavenly home. Restoring us is what all of this is after. And so to picture Joseph as a restorer of humanity. To picture him bringing to pass. Restoring this. How the perspective that we all need. To look in the mirror and realize that God hasn't given up hope on any of us. That's the restoration that we're all a part of. He'll say it again in a moment, but keep reading and we'll get there. Verse 14, thus prophesied Joseph saying, behold, that seer will the Lord bless and they that seek to destroy him. And we see more and more of those in our day. They shall be confounded for this promise, which I have obtained of the Lord of the fruit of my loins shall be fulfilled. Joseph of Egypt was banking on that. If I'm here to save my family, there better be someone in the, la- in the latter days that's called to do the same thing. If my posterity will be a broken branch, one that grows over the wall and might feel forgotten or forsaken as a result, who's going to remind them of who they are? Who's going to restore them to their rightful place in the family? Somebody better. And here he is, seen in in vision, not just someone who's going to be like him, but someone who's going to share his name. There is so, so fitting. And again, especially as one who studies anti-Mormonism, much of which boils down to anti-Joseph Smithism. To see this promise that Joseph of Egypt was banking on, those who are seeking Joseph's destruction will be confounded, which in the 1828 dictionary means to be put to shame or silenced, or astonished by what they see. There is very little that I am not familiar with in terms of what people have said negatively against the Prophet Joseph. And currently his most vocal enemies are people who at one point in their lives believed in him. These are those who are attacking him mercilessly usually decontextualizing so much of what, he's do, what he did historically and painting things in the worst possible light. I spoke with one of them once, and they accused the church of whitewashing the history of, uh, the, the history of the church and the history of Joseph Smith. And I simply responded, is that any better or worse than you blackwashing him? Because if you're worried that we're not telling the whole story, well, you are simply presenting the photographic negative of everything that you oppose. And you are taking away so much of the context that shows that puts in proper perspective what Joseph was trying to do. This way you can simply paint him in the worst possible light. When I hear them call him a pedophile, or a con man, or a, a megalomaniac, someone who is trying to, to take control as king of the world... Please read. If you want to study Joseph Smith, wonderful. Be my guest. But study the whole thing. And instead of replacing what you consider a whitewashed version with a blackwashed version, see the whole version. And Joseph Smith will come out shining. To understand what he went through. How he went from weak to strong. The ways that he grew up in God the ways that the Lord tutored him and trained him. I worry sometimes that so many people in the church have a hard time singing praise to the man because they've been introduced to so many half-truths about him that he's come away the worse for wear. Remember the angel Moroni told the young 17-year-old it would be that way. Your name will be had for good and evil among all nations. And sadly, his name is had for evil, even among certain members of the church. Study him. Let him speak for himself. Let those who knew him best describe him. One of my favorite books, by the way, is simply a compilation of, of reminiscences and memories of those who knew him personally. And it's, it's called Remembering Joseph. And it's, uh, it's incredible just to see him through the lens of those who knew him best. Oh, when I was in divinity school and was comparing the mighty work that Joseph brought forth to restore the house of Israel and all of us to our relationship with God and compared that to all that I was studying throughout Christian history, almost every day I would walk out of class humming to myself, either we thank thee, O God for a prophet or praise to the man. I am grateful for promises like this that no matter what is being thrown, out, thrown at him out there by way of character assassination millions shall know brother Joseph again and they'll know him for who he really is they'll know him as a choice seer and those that oppose him will someday be confounded in fact the way Joseph says it here it's so amazing look at the end of verse 14 After giving us that testimony, that promise, that this later Joseph will overcome whatever obstacles are before him, Joseph of Egypt says, Behold, I am sure of the fulfilling of this promise. And I love that conviction. I'm sure of it. Here he is bearing his testimony. He says in verse 16 again, Yea, thus prophesied Joseph, I am sure of this thing, even as I am sure of the promise of Moses. For the Lord hath said unto me, I will preserve thy seed forever. And that ancient Joseph trusted God, the God of his fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. The God of his posterity, Lehi and Joseph, or Joseph Smith, Sr. and Joseph Smith, Jr. I'm amazed by this strength and this conviction. And I pray that the day will come if if we're not already there that we can come to know Joseph well enough to be able to bear a similar testimony. I am sure of this thing. Sure of his divine call. Sure of the work of restoration that he spent his life working toward and then gave his life to seal that testimony. I will forever be grateful. For the prophet Joseph. And if Joseph of Egypt. Was concerned about. The need for a Moses. If, if I'm bringing my family to Egypt. This is not the promised land. We're supposed to stay in forever. Will someone someday bring my posterity back. Remember Joseph himself said. When I die here in Egypt. Do not leave my bones here. If we're a branch. That's, that's, that's uh, c- c- crossed the Nile make sure you bring my bones back and and bury them in Canaan. And picture this Joseph and his father Lehi feeling similar things. But back to Joseph of Egypt, if Moses is going to bring us back to the promised land, will there be a choice seer in the latter days that will bring us to a promised land in a similar way? Oh, yes, I am sure of that. We then see... Lehi speaking more about Moses and his spokesman, Aaron. And then he draws an interesting parallel. Verse 18, I will raise up unto the fruit of thy loins and I will make for him a spokesman. And I, behold, I, I love how personal he is in this. I'm going to do it. You got that? I will give unto him that he shall write the writing of the fruit of thy loins unto the fruit of thy loins. And the spokesman of thy loins shall declare it. Now, Tricky passage, but what you see there in verse 18 is a, a writer and a spokesman. And some people look at that and think, oh, who's going to write these things out? Well, that'll be Joseph Smith. And who's going to declare them, explain them to people? Well, Oliver Cowdery would do that. He was better educated than Joseph. And Sidney Rigdon would really do that, and he was far better educated than Joseph as well. And that's an interesting fulfillment of that prophecy. But there may be an even more direct one than that. Because if you think about this person that will be raised up to write the writing of the Fruit of Thy Loins, and he's going to be aiming those writings to that target audience itself, the Fruit of Joseph's Loins, the tribes of Ephraim and Manasseh, who, who receives the Book of Mormon? We do. And it's up to us to spread it to the rest of the family of Israel and on to the rest of the, of the family of Adam. But to think about Mormon being the one that would write those writings. And if Mormon is the one doing the writing, then who is declaring these things? Who's Mormon's spokesman? Well, that would be Joseph Smith. Elder McConkie interpreted this verse in that way, at least. And so it's interesting to think, instead of just Joseph and Sidney, or Joseph and Oliver, think about Mormon and Joseph Smith. And what what a dynamic duo in recording these things and then translating these things to bring them forth to restore us to a full understanding of God's covenant. You see more of that in verse 19 and 20. The words which he shall write shall be the words which are expedient in my wisdom should go forth unto the fruit of thy loins. So what we're getting in the Book of Mormon is exactly what an all-knowing God intends for us to learn. It shall be as if the fruit of thy loins had cried unto them from the dust... For I know their faith. And we'll see that kind of faith exhibited time and time again in terms of the Book of Mormon someday coming forth. They were banking on that. They were putting all their eggs in a latter-day basket. This book must outlive us. It has to come back to feed the entire family. And the Lord knew their faith and honored it. Keep reading. They shall cry from the dust, yea, even repentance unto their brethren. That's the key message of all of this. It's what we must do to lay hold of the covenants that are spelled out on these pages. So, repentance unto their brethren, even after many generations have gone by them. And it shall come to pass that their cry shall go, even according to the simpleness of their words. And I do love how simple the Book of Mormon's call to repentance really is. Oh, come unto Christ, come unto the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And Joseph, we can add, and be saved. That was the fullness of Nephi's intent. And that was the prayer of faith uttered by every Book of Mormon prophet from start to finish. Now, how's that going to come forth? Well, through that spokesman. Verse 21, Because of their faith, their words shall proceed forth out of my mouth unto their brethren who are the fruit of thy loins. And the weakness of their words Will I make strong in their faith unto the remembering of my covenant which I made unto thy fathers? That will be exactly Moroni's concern in Ether chapter 12. Will I be able to do this well? Will the Gentiles mock at the weakness of the Book of Mormon and the Lord's promise then? All fools mock, but they shall mourn. My grace is sufficient for the meek. And if they'll come unto me I will let them know the power and strength of this book. Oh, Joseph Smith, out of weakness will be made strong. And the book that he will translate, out of weakness will be made strong as well. So Moroni, don't worry about that. Joseph, don't worry about that. You and I, as we trip up over our awkward words and can't quite do the Book of Mormon justice, how oh, just trust God's power. To bring forth light and truth to anyone with an open heart to receive it. That's the promise of the Book of Mormon. Notice verse uh, 22 and 23. Now, behold, my son Joseph, after this manner did my father of old prophesy. Wherefore, because of this covenant, how many times has that word come up in this short chapter? It's promise, promise, covenant, covenant. You are not forgotten, you are not forsaken. God is still fully invested in our salvation, even as a scattered branch. So because of this covenant, thou art blessed. For thy seed shall not be destroyed, for they shall hearken unto the words of the book. You see what it's all riding on? Salvation from destruction, their blessedness, all of this depends on their reaction to this book. They're going to make it because they'll listen, because they'll believe. I love the way the Lord keeps referring to this book. Notice if you go back starting in verse 7 and then verse 8 and then jumping ahead to 15. At first he calls it a work. Then he calls it the work. Then he calls it my work. The thing is what he says in verse 15. It's just I don't even know what to call it anymore. It's just this thing. But the thing that is going to be brought forth is going to change human history. It's going to convince people that Jesus is the Christ. Right alongside the Bible... It will restore people to that true understanding. And so, a work, the work, my work. There's a lot of personal pronouns in this chapter too. I, behold, I, the work that God will do, the things the Lord will bring forth. Oh, he takes the Book of Mormon personally. Because his covenants are writing on it we then see our last words about Joseph Smith in verse 24. There shall rise up one mighty among them who shall do much good, both in word and in deed. And I love studying both of those when it comes to the prophet Joseph. The things he taught, the things he wrote, the things he said, but also the things he did. They are a witness of the reality of Jesus Christ from start to finish. It's incredible. But he will be mighty, both word and indeed, being an instrument in the hands of God. With exceeding faith, he had that. To work mighty wonders, he did that. And do that thing which is great in the sight of God. Here's the purpose. Unto the bringing to pass much restoration unto the house of Israel and unto the seed of thy brethren. That's the mission of Joseph Smith. To bring to pass much restoration. Love that line. And remember, not the restoration of things but rather the restoration of people to restore the O house of Israel. If Joseph Smith could simply sit down with you and tell you who you are and who God intends you to become, children of God, children of the covenant, disciples of Jesus Christ, builders of the kingdom, modern day pioneers, Latter-day Joseph's, every one of us, meant to, to bring the bread of life, the fruit of the tree of life, to the rest of the family. If you're in your seven years of plenty, stock up. If you are suffering through your years of want, reflect on the blessings God has already given you through the prophet Joseph Smith. And may that carry you through any times of spiritual famine until you can once again say, alongside Joseph of Egypt, I am sure of this thing. Father Lehi then concludes this chapter to his youngest son, saying to him in verse 25, Now blessed art thou, Joseph. Behold, thou art little. And I just, as a father whose children are not so little anymore, I just wonder if the, the, the feeling of a tender parent right there. You're little, son. And sadly, I won't be here to watch you grow up. So what does he say instead? Wherefore, hearken unto the words of thy brother Nephi, and it shall be done unto thee even according to the words which I have spoken. Remember the words of thy dying father. Amen. With that, you get a sense that Father Lehi is passing the baton to Brother Nephi. And though I will not see this little Joseph grow up, your big brother Brother Nephi will. So follow him. Please follow him far better than Laman and Lemuel will. With that, we move forward to chapter 4. And after speaking to Joseph, Lehi then turns to the children of Laman, his grandchildren, and says a fascinating thing to them. First, he repeats that all-important Deuteronomic promise that if you keep the commandments, you will prosper in the land. If you don't, then then you have no promise. Again, this is part of the the Deuteronomy message that that, uh, Moses gives the house of Israel. Blessings on one side, curses on the other, and you get to pick which one you'll be a part of. He's mentioning these blessings and curses to the posterity of Laman and Lemuel here. And he says this in verse 5 of chapter 4. Behold, my sons and my daughters, we, literally my grandsons and granddaughters, I cannot go down to my grave save I should leave a blessing upon you. For behold, I know that if ye are brought up in the way ye should go, ye will not depart from it. Now those words are dripping with irony and probably a lot of parental pain did you catch what he said to the, to the children of Laman? If you could be brought up in the way you should go, you'll never depart from it. But hadn't he done that with Laman and Lemuel? I, I wish we knew more of this story. I wonder what kind of a parent Lehi had been before the prophets came into Jerusalem, his hometown, and began to cry repentance. How much change did that work within Father Lehi? Is there regret in what he's saying here? Is there an admission that I wish I would have done more? I don't know. We don't know anything about those pre-conversion, pre-prophetic years. From that moment on, we see him as the, the ultimate parent. We see him naming rivers after Laman and valleys after Lemuel. We see him exhorting them with all the feelings of a tender parent. Giving them all that he's got. I just wonder what does he mean by this? Is he he's not naive. He knows what his sons have been plotting, his own death, and the death of their of his son Nephi. There has been friction within this family, all too much of it. And yet for him to give that reassurance to his grandchildren, I wonder if there's worry there too. Because he must know. Because of the intervening generation, you, my beloved grandchildren, will not be raised in righteousness. You will not be raised up in the way that you should go. And therefore, I do worry that you will depart from the path. As your father has. I still hold out hope. I still pray. I still Exhort! I'm trying to get them to rise from the dust to keep God's promises here on this land of promise but God's will be done and he trusts God with things I love Lehi and Sariah and the older I get and the more time passes in my parenting the more regrets I feel also of times I've been less from, less than the parent my children needed me to be. And wishing I could have taught them in such a way that they would be impervious to doubt, to temptation. I just wish I could bring them to the tree of life, Surround them with an iron rod as a barrier against anything the great and spacious building might throw their way and Just sit together and feast upon this fruit forever That's Lehi and Saraya's dream as well. And so for them to picture their grandchildren. I know some of you are are wrestling with this exact feeling Wondering what you could have done differently So that your children would have made different choices. Watching those children grow up and raise their children without the things that you tried to raise them with. Looking at your grandchildren and wondering if they'll ever have the blessings of the fullness of the gospel. That you had and that you tried to give to your children, their parents. This is a, a tricky passage because there's no resolution it, it's not an easy one. This is one I think we're meant to just sit with and wrestle with and and mourn over. I wonder if Lehi is wrestling with the difference between nature and nurture. Does he understand the nature of his children? Is he overemphasizing nurture? Just thinking, if I would have done better, if I could have raised them in the way, they never would have departed from it? Is he beating himself up with that line? I don't know. I don't know everything that's going on in his heart. But I hope that we can trust the covenants of the Father, because that's what Lehi keeps coming back to. It's, it's the, it's the cut-off cut branch. It's the, the scattered family. It's the trust that he has in a God of tender mercies. And so to me, I think there is something beautiful about blessing his grandchildren and if my children won't let me bless them in the way I want, oh, please, Heavenly Father, give me access to my children's children in hopes that I might somehow bend the tree branch back towards alignment with the light of the world. Pray for that, grandmas and grandpas, of prodigal children who have not yet come home. There's an interesting law called Hansen's Law, and it's called Hansen, because Hansen is one of those very common Scandinavian last names. And the way Scandinavian names last names work I should know, I'm a Halvor's son. They end in son, because at some point there was a, a, a man named Halvor, and he had a son whose last name became Halvor son. And in Hans's case, it's a very common Danish name, for example, Hans, Hans, Christian Andersen. Andersson, son of Anders. Well, Hans son would, Hansen would be the son of Hans. And Hansen's Law states that in a family of immigrants, the first generation has come to a new place, but is still more old world than new and holds on to that. But the second generation who has been raised in the new place is so embarrassed by their parents and the old world traditions that they've been carrying that they want to fully acclimatize into their new surroundings. They abandon the faith of their fathers, if we want to put it that way, in order to fit in to the world that they've moved into. But if that's the challenge of the second generation, the third generation looks back to the first. That's Hansen's Law. And it's these grandchildren that look back to grandma and grandpa and want to tap back into those traditions. They, they want to know what life was like back in the old country. They want to resurrect some of those old Christmas traditions or, or family holidays. They want to understand who they are. And in some ways, they look at their parents and wonder, why did you not teach us who we really are? Oh, I wonder if there's a Hanson's Law at play here with Lehi's grandchildren. He hopes so, at least. He is blessing them, praying for that. In fact, in verse 6 and 7, he says, Wherefore, if ye are cursed, and that's a painful word based on what we're going to study in a moment in chapter 5, that Lamanite curse upon his own grandchildren, how can he save them from that, spare them? Well, if ye are cursed, behold, I leave my blessing upon you. There is a battle between blessings and curses. This is the choice placed before them. This is Deuteronomy 2 a t. If you're cursed, I bless you, even that your cursing may be taken from you and be answered upon the heads of your parents. Wherefore, because of my blessing, the Lord God will not suffer that ye shall perish. Wherefore, he will be merciful unto you and unto your seed forever. Remember, The thesis statement of the Book of Mormon is that this is a book of tender mercies. That God is merciful to his children. He was merciful to Nephi. He's merciful to to Lehi. Lehi is banking on the fact that he'll be merciful to his grandchildren. And so whatever curse comes upon you because of poor nurture, I bless you to hold on to your true nature as children of God. And that if you can tap into that truer identity, if you can skip the intervening generations and come back to your true roots in the olive tree of Israel, then all will be well for you. And hopefully, in God's divine, tender, and merciful way, maybe the blessed grandparents and the blessed grandchildren can squeeze out the curse that's come between and save those intervening generations that struggled. I believe in that. Well, that's the blessing to, his grand, to the grandchildren that came through Laman. He then gives similar blessings to the grandchildren who came through Lemuel. He then blesses the sons of Ishmael. He turns to Sam and blesses him and his posterity as well. We then see this in verse 12. And it came to pass after my father Lehi had spoken unto all his household according to the feelings of his heart and the spirit of the Lord which was in him, he waxed old, and it came to pass that he died and was buried. Can we pause there and mourn for a moment over Father Lehi? Everything he's taught us this past month, everything he's done to cry repentance to his people, to face their persecution and scorn, to sacrifice all that he had so that he could bring his family off to some land he'd never heard of, but banking that it would be as promised as God had said. All the feelings of a tender parent, we saw that again. There he is, blessing them according to the feelings of his heart. That's one half. But also, according to the Spirit of the Lord, that's the other half. It's this beautiful synergy where every child is being blessed by both of their father's earthly as well as heavenly. And this beloved patriarch, Lehi, blessing his posterity with everything he possibly can. I think it's interesting, interesting when Nephi says that after that was done, whoa, he waxed old. Well, Nephi, that's been happening for a while. Uh, we saw that as early as the boat uh, and what was happening there. And But I think there's something powerful about What Nephi's noticing, it's almost like his father became young Lehi again and mustered all of his strength to be able to give these final patriarchal blessings. And it was only after that, only after he had fulfilled his fatherly role, that the the years returned, that he waxed old and finally passed on letting his posterity move forward into the promised land without him, just the way Moses would. Blessings and curses and take your choice. I have set before thee life and death. Wherefore, choose life. And he lets them. I remember years ago, I think it was my first year teaching the Book of Mormon in seminary, and Lehi came to life for us. To the point that when this verse came, it devastated us all. I actually remember preparing the lesson to teach in 2 Nephi 4 and dreading the reality that I would have to teach about the death of Lehi. I felt like I was an accomplice to the crime. Like, if I don't teach this tomorrow, then can he outlive the text? Can he just keep on going? Now, the irony is that Lehi has died in 2 Nephi 4 every single time I'd ever read the Book of Mormon up to that point. He, he never survives a reading. And yet it was that time for the first time that I truly mourned over his passing. And it dawned on me. Maybe I didn't mourn all the previous times I'd read this because he'd never really come to life in those previous readings. And we don't tend to mourn the death of someone that was never alive to us to begin with. I hope in your times of pondering as you reflect on the things that Lehi has done and taught that you will feel to mourn over his passing. He deserves so much of our gratitude for the things that he's written and the things that he's done. It's there that you then see the final split. And the one thing that would have broken his heart, had he been alive to see it, happens shortly after his own passing. In verse 13 and 14, it came to pass that not many days after his death, Laman and Lemuel and the sons of Ishmael were angry with me because of the admonitions of the Lord. For I, Nephi, was constrained to speak unto them according to his word. I wonder if they had only kept the peace because they knew their father was dying and wanting to honor his dying wishes. And what had they been back in chapter 1 of 2 Nephi? To be determined to be of one mind and one heart? To rebel not against thy brother Nephi, whose views have been glorious? Go back and reread the end of chapter 1. And I wonder if that kept Laman and Lemuel kept them behave at least a little longer but again as soon as Lehi was gone so was all of their resolve to stay together in one happy family if you, in fact if you go back to Joseph of Egypt what happened as soon as Jacob their father died all the brothers were scared to death thinking that perhaps Joseph was only nice to us he was pretending he was playing nice to appease our father but now the dad is gone. Joseph's going to take out his anger on us for what we did to him 20 years ago. And nothing could be further from the truth. But in this case, if Laman and Lemuel were hiding behind their father, as soon as his fa- their father was laid in the grave, what, what grew out of these older brothers was anger and hatred and plans on physical violence. It's here, then, that we see them split. But actually, not quite. Because we we have to wait till chapter 5 for that to happen. In some ways, what's interesting is that the rest of chapter 4, and there's a lot left, the rest of chapter 4 is an interruption. The very next story in the narrative is the split between Laman and Nephi. And that's exactly what they're getting at and aiming for in this verse that we just saw in in verse 13 and 14. But Nephi pauses that and stretches out the narrative long enough to insert in this place his own magnificent psalm. Now, like I mentioned before, This Nebo-type experience with Father Lehi blessing all of his posterity. We saw blessings on Laman and Lemuel and Sam and Zoram and the sons of Ishmael and Jacob and Joseph and anybody missing? Yeah. Where's the final exhortation to Nephi? Where's the Father's blessing on the son that most closely followed him? Now, Grant Hardy, an incredible scholar, wrote a book called Understanding the Book of Mormon. That's one of my favorite books on the Book of Mormon I've ever read. And what Dr. Hardy's great gift was, was trying to make sense of the editorial decisions of the three main editors of the Book of Mormon, namely Nephi, for the small plates, and then Mormon and Moroni. And here he pauses and and draws that to our attention. Why no blessing for Nephi? There must have been one. And what he suggests, perhaps Nephi purposely left it out because it it hurt too much to hold on to. If he said to Laman and Lemuel, you've got to be determined, you've got to be one, you've got to follow your brother Nephi, then can you imagine what he must have said to Nephi? You've got to be one, you've got to be determined, you've got to make sure your brothers keep following you. It's the only hope they have. It's the only hope we ha- I have for my grandchildren on that side of the family tree. Nephi, ever since we left Jerusalem, eight years in the wilderness, crossing the ocean, coming and settling in the promised land, I, I have had one mission and I've kept it. I've kept my family together. Now it's your turn to do the same. And that was a mission that Nephi could not fulfill the agency allotted to Laman and Lemuel simply wouldn't allow it and imagine if we saw some possible parental regret on Nephi, on Lehi's part this, there must have been some painful brotherly regret on the part of Nephi to the point of I don't even want to record that I failed my father on earth I failed my father in heaven. What have I done in not being able to keep my family together? Now again, we cannot beat ourselves up over this unmercifully. Because agency is a real thing. And we have seen Nephi work with his older brothers time and time again in beautiful ways. Following the Samuel principle. All of those beautiful things that we saw throughout 1 Nephi. But now the family is about to split. And the way Dr. Hardy describes it, to take our, our mind away from the missing blessing, may he put in, his, in its place this magnificent psalm to the point that we don't even see what isn't there. Now I'm grateful that we get to see what is there. The psalm of Nephi is an absolute masterpiece. And as you study the book of psalms in the Old Testament, there are so many different types, different subgenres of this larger zo- genre of a psalm. A song, a hymn, There are psalms of praise. There are psalms of lament. There are psalms of thanksgiving. There are psalms of exhortation. There are psalms of of history. So many different things. And in a way, Nephi is weaving them all together in this magnificent psalm that will occupy the rest of chapter 4. To to ponder each verse, it's worth some slow attention. Start in verse 15. Upon these, these plates that is, I write the things of my soul. And we're going to get a glimpse into the glorious soul of Nephi here. He'll write those things and many of the scriptures which are engraven upon the plates of brass. That's why we're going to see so much of Isaiah coming up shortly. But notice they're engraven there. The things of his soul and the things on the brass plates. In my mind, those are two places where the truths are engraven on metal plates and on the fleshy tables of Nephi's heart. The way he puts it next, my soul delighteth in the scriptures, and my heart pondereth them, and writeth them for the learning and the profit of my children. Behold, my soul delighteth in the things of the Lord, and my heart pondereth continually upon the things which I have seen and heard. I don't know if there's a better verse about what real scripture study looks like than that. We're not just skimming over Scripture. We're not just reading a verse or two to check the box and say that we did our Scripture study for the day. No, this is something his soul delights in. It's what President Hinckley called a love affair with the Word of God. Do you dream of it when you can't be with it? My wife did when she first converted to the Lord. She'd be at work just... (laughs) Chomping at the bit, I can't wait till I'm done so I can go home and read the Book of Mormon. (laughs) Literally, it it changed everything for her. And for Nephi, I delight in these things. I ponder them. Do we do that enough? Or are we just moving our eyes as quickly, quickly as we can to get through the page? It's not just about eye movement. It's about the mighty change of heart. And so ponder these things. Write them. Write down Scripture in your own word. Keep a Scripture study journal. Take notes in the margin. Write down principles on the page. Oh, fill in the lines between the lines and you'll be amazed at what the Spirit is whispering by way of a personalized seal portion. To write those things, to ponder them continually for the learning and the profit of you and your children. Oh, there's Scripture study for you. Now, that psalm of thanksgiving that we just saw in 15 and 16 then becomes a psalm of lamentation in 17 and 18. We'll see the full spectrum of Nephi's emotions here, which is something we haven't seen as much of to this point. He seems fairly stoic. Everyone else is hangry and complaining about food, and he isn't. Uh, He doesn't murmur because he turned to the Lord. So many things, he just seems to be steady. But here, with the loss of his father with the imminent departure of his brethren, with what must have felt like a failed mission, what does he say in 17 and 18? Nevertheless, so despite all that I've seen in Scripture about the mercy and goodness and kindness of God, nevertheless, notwithstanding the great goodness of the Lord in showing me his great and marvelous works, my heart exclaimeth, O wretched man that I am. Yea, my heart sorroweth because of the temptations and the sins which do so easily beset me. This is the raw reality of the human condition. And Nephi feels it deeply. He is wrestling with the natural man. And don't we all? Haven't we all been been brought to our knees on occasion with the realization and the confession that we're not what we want to be, that we know the goodness of God, that we've seen his hand in our lives, and yet our wretchedness stares us in the face because we're falling short. Sounds like Nephi here needs to go back and listen to what Dad told Jacob last week to trust in the righteousness of his Redeemer, which is exactly what Nephi will do. But before we get there, just to sit with this. Think about the way he said it in the verses we just read. I am encompassed about. There's temptation, there's sin. It it doth easily beset me. My soul is grieved because of these things. There's there's some evidence of depression there. A grieving soul. This sense of being encompassed about, feeling trapped by that. As my wife and son work in the world of addiction recovery, that describes their feelings of being encompassed about. There's no way out. I cannot escape my own sins. Or my own sinfulness. And Nephi feels those things keenly. And yet... We see the pendulum swinging back and forth emotionally in this great man. Because from Psalm of Thanksgiving to Psalm of Lamentation and then back to Psalm of Praise. Despite what he's just said about himself in the last two verses. Look at the next few. 19 through 22. When I desire to rejoice. That's what I want to do. I can't. My heart groaneth because of my sins. Nevertheless. And this is the second time he has said, nevertheless, here. Okay? That, those are, that's the pivot points on this emotional pendulum. Nevertheless, notwithstanding the great goodness of God, I'm a sinful person. But nevertheless, despite the fact that my heart groans because of my sins, I know in whom I have trusted. And that's what changes everything. I know the God of tender mercies. That's why I'll come unto him. I know the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I know the salvation that they have covenanted to give to their posterity and to all the world. I trust in God. I know in whom I've trusted. And as a result, why should I groan? Why should I lament to the point of refusing to be comforted? The way he says it next My God hath been my support. He hath led me through mine afflictions in the wilderness. We saw that in chapter 7 of 1 Nephi. We saw that in chapter 16 of 1 Nephi. Every step of the way, ye shall know that it is by me that ye are led. And Nephi knew it. He hath preserved me upon the waters of the great deep. We saw that back in chapter 18. He hath filled me with his love, even unto the consuming of my flesh. He hath confounded mine enemies unto the causing of them to quake before me. We saw that back in chapter 17. Interesting, by the way, that he's calling Laman and Lemuel his enemies. That's that's hard. But that's how they've acted toward him. Everything that he said in those last few verses, we can pinpoint in the pages of 1 Nephi. Except that part about being filled with his love unto the consuming of his flesh. I wonder when that happened or if that was something that just seemed to happen over and over for Nephi when he was bound by his brethren back in chapter 7 and yet prayed to God and had the, ba- the, binds, or had the, the ropes loosed on his wrists was that the consuming of his flesh he didn't even feel that pain and was it love that filled him To the point that these bonds of hatred just couldn't fit on him. No wonder they burst. He was so filled with love. No wonder he could frankly forgive them when they repented. Or fast forward to chapter 18 when they're on the boat. And he's been suffering through this storm at sea. Bound to the mast. To the point that his wrists and ankles are horribly swollen. But he doesn't complain about that. Is that to the consuming of that painful flesh? Because he's filled with love instead? Is that Jesus on the cross? Father, forgive them for they don't know what they do. Is that Stephen being stoned? Father, lay not this sin to their charge. It's amazing what can happen when you are filled with God's love to the point that you can love your enemy and see them as your brethren instead. So far we have seen Nephi swing back and forth between regret and rejoicing. Between worry over his own sinfulness and gratitude for the tender mercies and and grace of Jesus Christ. Again, between the notwithstandings and the neverthelesses, there we live our lives and I hope we don't water down either side of it that we can recognize our wretchedness to the point of confessing our sins and relying wholly upon him who is mighty to save and then relying on him knowing that might you see it in the next few verses where he speaks of prayers and visions and angels and the spirit himself in verse 25 mine eyes have beheld great things yea even too great for man therefore I was bidden that I should not write them Oh, did you have to tell him not to? I would have loved to have my, get my hands on those scriptures. And yet, like Job, like the psalmist, like the writer of Proverbs, all of whom said that there are things about God that are too wonderful for me. That's a great phrase. And Nephi is feeling the same. These were things that are too great for man. And then this realization, verse 26. Oh, then, if I have seen so great things, if the Lord in his condescension unto the children of men hath visited men in so much mercy, why should my heart weep and my soul linger in the valley of sorrow and my flesh waste away and my strength slacken because of mine afflictions? You get his question there? Why should I stay in that state when the Lord is inviting me to come out of it? So often in the scriptures, one's encounter with the Lord brings you to your knees. But one of the first things he ever says is to rise, to lift you up, to dust yourself off, to start following him. Uh, A friend, by the way, just the other day, I'd been studying Jacob, wrestling with his feelings of anxiety, trying to understand what he could teach us from a, a mental health perspective. And right in the midst of all of that, one of you wonderful listeners reached out to me and shared an experience you'd had on, on your mission. When a general authority who had been a physician in his previous professional life came and was working with the missionaries, so many of whom struggle with mental health challenges themselves. And he said, do you ever picture Nephi struggling with depression? Like I said last week, have you ever pictured Jacob struggling with anxiety? Well, the verse that this general authority pointed to the verse I just read, 2 Nephi chapter 4, verse 26, and said, from a physician's standpoint, what's your diagnosis? When someone talks about hearts weeping and souls lingering in sorrow, if that doesn't sound like depression, I don't know what does where you just can't come out of it. You don't snap out. It's, everyone goes through the ups and downs and the roller coaster of emotion. But when you can't seem to get out of the valley of sorrow, when you just feel like you're lingering and languishing there, that's how Nephi is feeling in this moment. When it describes him, him as his flesh wasting away, would that be a cause for concern for the family doctor when you are losing weight? You can't seem to eat. You've lost your appetite. What, what's wrong? Or the, the last line my strength slackens because of my afflictions. And slackened strength. I can't get out of bed anymore. I don't, there's nothing that gets me going. I don't have the strength to face my day. Oh, these are real people with real challenges and real concerns. Real mental makeups, real emotional wiring. And here you see Nephi at his absolute lowest, but also his absolute highest. It's all right here in this magnificent psalm. I'm not going to linger there. I know in whom I have trusted. He has led me through the wilderness. He'll lead me out of this one. In his time and in his way, better days will be ahead. That's the covenant. Notice in verse 27, Why should I yield to sin because of my flesh? Yea, why should I give way to temptations that the evil one have place in my heart to destroy my peace and afflict my soul? Why am I angry because of mine enemy? Now notice that was singular. He used enemies before, and that seemed to refer to Laman and Lemuel. But if this is the enemy singular, oh, the adversary, and he seems to be the source of so much of this contention, of this depression, this, this sense of the battle between me and the better angels of my nature. The notwithstandings and the neverthelesses and the tug of war with me as the rope. God is on my side. And if I can hold to that, then why would I ever Follow the adversary. Why would I yield to him? Why would I give way to temptation? Do you notice the repetition of those, that kind of language? To yield, to give way, to have place. Why would I ever surrender? Why would I ever stop putting up a fight when the enemy of all righteousness is trying to drag me down to the ultimate valley of sorrow? He doesn't want there to be a way to return. So what is he saying to himself in 28 and 29 and 30? Now here is something worth memorizing as a mantra. Anytime you feel your strength slackening or your flesh wasting away, anytime depression starts to gnaw at the corners of your mind, say to yourself as Nephi does, Awake, my soul. No longer droop in sin Rejoice, O my heart, and give place no more for the enemy of my soul. Can you picture him commanding himself? (laughs) Awake, wake up, I can do this. Back in chapter 1, it was Father saying to Laman and Lemuel, Awake, my sons. But here it's Nephi saying it to himself, to his own soul. Get up, you can do this. Actually, we can do this, the Lord and I. Don't droop in sin. Come on, heart, rejoice, you got this. Don't let the enemy of your soul have place there. Kick him out. Drive him away. Do not anger again because of mine enemies. Do not slacken my strength because of mine afflictions. Rejoice, O my heart, and cry unto the Lord and say, O Lord, I will praise thee forever. Even in my hardest moments. Yea, my soul will rejoice in thee, my God, and the rock of my salvation. Oh, Nephi is a wise man and he is trying to build his house on that rock, the rock of his salvation. Here he is focused, laser-like on the positive. When my sweet mother-in-law was going through absolute hell, mentally and emotionally, and wondered if she would ever escape the valley of sorrow. Depression, anxiety, suicidal ideation, constantly, psychiatric hospitalization, and long-term struggles and suffering, wondering if she would ever feel normal again. I so admire my mother-in-law for fighting the good fight, for wrestling with her inner demons, for trusting wise professionals who reassured her, her that things could get better. And so much of that would depend on what she would do as she fought the fight. They suggested that she create some mantras to retrain her brain from all the years of negative self-talk and to push out and create a new voice in the mind. At first, when she created a mantra that reminded her who she really is and whose she really is, she said it felt like she was lying to herself every time she said it. It's like, why am I doing this? I know better than this. And yet, no, it was simply the negative voice in the head that kept trying to, that was that darkness that kept trying to push out light. But that light that started like such a dim glimmer, she kept fanning those flames. She kept repeating her mantra. She gave her mind something to lay hold on. Something better. Something that could, had the potential of drawing her out of the valley of sorrow. Every time her strength slacked or her flesh wasted away. And she, said, she repeated it to herself countless times a day. Day after day after day. Until very slowly, very gradually, it went from feeling like she was lying to herself to have a glimmer of hope that maybe, just maybe some of that might be true. But the longer she did it, the longer she took care of her health, nutrition, sleep, thought patterns, therapy, listening to the sister missionaries start the gospel all over again since she had left the church and abandoned her membership. She had hit rock bottom. But like I've said before, that's the best place to be because you're finally back in contact with the rock that has always been beneath you. Remember, it's the rock of my salvation that Nephi has come to know because he's hit rock bottom, but that's the place to come to know him and to rebuild upon him, which is exactly what my mother-in-law did. She is such an example of true healing from the devastation of depression. She has written a book about her experience. She, has, she works in, in the prison system with inmates trying to help them with with meditation and mindfulness and real recovery. Her life is one of consecration and she's consecrating her afflictions for the benefit of other people. It's a beautiful thing to behold. And you see so much of these same kinds of truths in what Nephi is doing to navigate this valley of sorrow for himself. Oh, please give yourself something for the mind to take hold of and awake my soul. Is a good one rejoice my heart is a good one i will rejoice in thee my god and the rock of my salvation that's a good one too verse 31 and 32 he then says oh lord can you picture this prayer just rising up from this troubled soul but this rejoicing soul also he says O Lord wilt thou redeem my soul I wonder if that was meant to be an exclamation point or a question mark as it's printed here a hope a plea please redeem my soul or a question wondering will you I can't do it on my own there's real vulnerability in that question wilt thou redeem my soul Wilt Thou deliver me out of the hands of mine enemies? Wilt Thou make me that I may shake at the appearance of sin? May the gates of hell be shut continually before me, because that my heart is broken and my spirit is contrite. O Lord, wilt Thou not shut the gates of Thy righteousness before me, that I may walk in the path of the low valley, that I may be strict in the plain road." Oh, what a prayer. What pleading. Father, my heart is broken. My spirit is contrite. This is godly sorrow. This is everything that repentance is hoping to create within us. And so what an answer to that question. Will I redeem thy soul? Of course, that's what I came for. When he asks, please, can I shake at the appearance of sin? Whether that's that anything that appears sinful, may I be frightened off by it instead of lulled into carnal security by it. May I shake when sin appears knowing that I have been given a way to escape. That's what he's praying for too. Don't shut the gates of thy righteousness, but please shut continually the gates of hell. If he's asking God to shut the gates of hell, in his mind they must be open. And the adversary does everything within his power to make sure they are. Always. Always come right on in. But for him to say, please do not shut the gates of thy righteousness, what does that suggest they are right now? Wide open. Oh, both heaven and hell are open before us. I have placed before you life and death, wherefore choose life. Nephi is taking this Deuteronomy moment seriously himself. And I just want to choose God. Please keep that, keep heaven open and close hell. Help me move in the right direction. That is true humility. That's broken heart, contrite spirit. That is the sacrifice that God is asking for from us all. He then prays in verse 33, "O Lord, wilt thou encircle me around in the robe of thy righteousness? You hear the echo of Lehi's words to Jacob we studied last week? Thou art saved, thou art redeemed because of the righteousness of thy Redeemer. That's all Nephi's praying for also. To be encircled about by that robe of righteousness compared to what he said earlier, remember? I am encompassed about by the temptations and sins that so easily beset me, I'm surrounded, and I'm going to be surrounded by one thing or the other. I'm going to come into one gate or the other, hell or heaven. I'm going to be surrounded by one thing or the other, encompassed about by my sins, or encircled about by the robes of Christ's righteousness. Oh, there's the mother hen gathering her chicks. Nephi then says, O oh Lord, wilt thou make a way for mine escape before mine enemies? Remember Paul's statement in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 13, that God is faithful. He'll never allow you to be tempted above that ye are able, but will always make a way for you to escape. Well, that's what Nephi is praying for. Please always show me the escape route. I'll take it every time. He says, wilt thou make my path straight before me? Because that's the fastest way to get back to God. Straight way. Wilt thou not place a stumbling block in my way, but that thou wouldst clear my way before me, and hedge not up my way, but the ways of mine enemy. Oh, Father, please make sure nothing gets in the way of me coming home. Home where thou art. Home where Lehi and Saraiah are. Home where I want to be. I love the thought of the Lord clearing away the obstacles, taking them out of our path and putting them in the path of the enemy of all righteousness. Slow him down. Speed us up. That's exactly what his grace is for. And so, with full faith in that grace, Nephi ends this psalm, saying in verse 34 and 35, O Lord, I have trusted in Thee. And I will trust in thee forever. You see, what's gotten him to this point in the past, it's what's going to get him through in the future. Have trusted, will trust. That's what's going to carry us forward. There's another option, though, and that's trusting in ourselves, which Nephi absolutely refuses to do. Maybe he would tried that when he tried to buy the brass plates from Laban and realized, nope, my plan is insufficient. I'm going to have to trust God in everything. And so he does. He says here, I will not put my trust in the arm of flesh, for I know that cursed is he that putteth his trust in the arm of flesh. Yea, cursed is he that putteth his trust in man, or maketh flesh his arm. Interesting, all these blessings he's been praying for, but recognizes the cursings that await on the other side. Again, Deuteronomy, they're laid out right before us, side by side. He then says, yea, I know that God will give liberally to him that asketh. And boy, he knows that by personal experience, right? Vision after vision after vision. Yea, my God will give me if I ask not amiss. Therefore, I will lift up my voice unto thee. Yea, I will cry unto thee. And then notice all the personal pronouns. My God the rock of my righteousness. Behold, my voice shall forever ascend up unto thee, my rock and mine everlasting God. Amen. How's that for personal praise? Full of personal pronouns. A personal relationship with the Lord. That's all he wants. It's what he's working toward. It's what he's holding on to. It's what's going to get him through things. He no longer has his Father on earth. Oh, but he's holding on to his Father in heaven. He knows in, who he has, in whom he has trusted. And that makes all the difference. Speaking of personal pronouns, I remember once being in a training meeting somewhere in Atlanta, if I remember correctly. And one of my colleagues was training a big room full of early morning seminary teachers. We were taking turns doing that, and it was his turn. And I remember this one moment. I can't remember exactly what was said. But one of the, he'd asked a question, and one of the teachers responded with a beautiful principle, a beautiful statement of faith that was put in general terms. Like, this is how God is, or we believe that such and such. And I'd never seen a teacher do this before, but the teacher just stopped. And thanked the student, quote unquote, in this case, the early morning teacher, thanked them for that comment and then asked them very gently, could you rephrase it though? Because what you said was general and I want something personal. You said something about we, I need to hear it from you. Could you rephrase what you just said? Coming from you personally. And the sweet woman thought, thought for a moment and mustered her faith and rephrased what she had just said with all personal pronouns. I know. I've had these experiences. And oh, the spirit in that room completely changed. Instead of vague, but true principles, it was a personal testimony grown from personal experience. And that's what Nephi has. It's absolutely beautiful. I am so grateful for Second Nephi chapter 4. I, it makes me wonder, what would the psalm of Jared sound like as compared to the psalm of Nephi? And if I could prayerfully ponder the hand of God in my life, my strengths and my weaknesses, my highs and my lows, my prayers and visions... <laughs> my experiences with the Spirit, my own wretchedness, but my own rejoicing? What would it sound like? And would my soul sing instead of drooping in sorrow? Maybe that's a homework assignment worth taking on, writing your own personal psalm and singing it.